This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Straightforward and simple today for our hot question of the day. I know everybody's frustrated with traffic, right? Because of the busy week. First couple weeks in September are always like that. So we want to know, what driving behavior bothers you the most at this time of year? Is it the people speeding like through a school zone? Is it the obstructing traffic? That's mine. You know, the double parkers, the people who have to slow down because they're dropping their kids off at school. Does that bug you? Is it the tailgating or is it something else? Reply and tell us what that is. Now, you'll find this online at CKNW or at SimiSarah980 on Twitter. You can, of course, email me, Simi at CKNW.com or hey, better yet, rant. Call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. I'll bet you even saw something this morning that drove you crazy. So why don't you let it all out by calling our buzz line? What is the driving behavior that bugs you the most at this time of year? Our buzz line, email, go online to at CKNW or at Simisera980 to cast your vote. You know, we thought they were going to be all done by now, but here we are at the start of a new school year, and there's still no deal with the teachers in the province. Negotiations between the government and teachers has been going for months. There's even a mediator involved at this point. But right now, they have paused the talks. Mediation set to continue September 23rd. So what is the holdup here? Are there hiccups? Should parents be concerned? Well, let's find out. We're talking now with Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hi, Simi. Okay, so where are we at with this? Should people be worried? Not right now. <laughs> Having <laughs> seen a lot of BCTF disputes, this one is, is quite a bit different than previous ones. There's no rush to the barricades here uh, from either side. And the, the TF, I think, has signaled that they know their members don't want to walk a picket line here. They don't want to withdraw their services. They don't want to take job action. So we've got this unprecedented situation of the teachers beginning the school year with no contract in place, which means the old contract uh, is, is, remains on the books until a new one is negotiated. But uh, Terry Maureen, the president of the TF, has made it very clear there's no prospect of a strike vote uh, anytime soon or job action. And yesterday was this odd sight out here on the front lawn of the legislature, Simi. Nice, sunny day. It was a Labor Day rally, and I walk out there, and who do I bump into but Terry Mooring, the BCTF president, Rob Fleming, the education minister. Uh, you know, people are all being non-confrontational in a way that we haven't seen in other disputes. So I think that's encouraging. Now, I think there's some important landmark dates, you know, if we get to Thanksgiving in October, uh, what happens then? Is it, does that tend yeah. to go up? When we get to the Christmas break, we come back after holidays. If there's still no contract, is that is that the time frame for when perhaps job action uh, begins? I don't think you're going to see a strike this school year. I do think there's a possibility of job action and disruption of the classroom, but I think that's going to take some time to play out. You, you mentioned the talks resume on the 23rd. That's when the mediator is going to bring the two parties together and see if there's if either of them have changed their positions on some key issues, notably contract language on class size and composition uh, and then talks if, he, if he's satisfied that they there's reason to resume talking he's will then resume mediated talks on september 30th so there's a lot of patience being shown here in a yeah. way that wasn't in, in previous disputes and if you're a parent i think that's encouraging right but i was following along with you on twitter on the weekend where you were discussing this with people and it seems like in some cases the two sides don't even fully agree on what was presented at the table yeah so rob fleming the education minister issued a statement on friday 
after the mediator said he was going to walk away for a while, saying that one of the options the government had put on the table was a no changes to contract language, uh, but uh, to pay the 2 2 and 2% that other unions have received. And that just enraged the BCTF, who said that we've not seen anything like that on, in terms of an offer on the table. Uh, the government is sticking to its position, and the TF sticking to its position that that offer has not been made. From what I can tell, it was something that was sent to the mediator by the by the BCPC, the Public Sector Employers um, Public School Employer Association, um, but was not then communicated to the BCTF. But that's just an illustration of just these two sides aren't in the same room talking. You know, when we talk right. about mediated talks, this is not the mediator uh, going into a room with the BCTF on one side of the room and the, and the, the employers on the other side. This is him going from room to room. Uh, these people haven't been in the same room talking. He's in charge of the talks. One side says they've made an offer that sounds interesting. Uh, the other side says we haven't seen it. But presumably when they get together on the 23rd, uh, things will be a lot clearer. Okay, so what is the holdup here then? What are the challenges? I think the challenges are from the employer. The employer is looking for flexibility uh, in terms of how you put classrooms together. The old language that the TF won through a court battle is back in the contract, but that's language that dates from 1998. The employer says the schools have completely changed. The makeup of the schools have changed. The definition of special needs has changed, and the old language does doesn't reflect that, so they need more flexibility. The BCTF's position is we just spent, you know, almost 20 years fighting this court battle, 15, 16 years, and we won. Why should we make changes now? So that they're stuck on that key point, that the TF doesn't want to make changes, or at least not significant changes. The employer says, though, that old contract language is out of date and it badly needs replacing. So that's, that's a big, big challenge for both sides uh, to get off on. And then you've got the compensation aspect, which I think is more solvable, because I don't think the TF can make a, a great case at the table with the mediator that they should be paid so much more than all the other public sector unions in terms of, of wage increase. I think that one's more solvable. Right. But the thorny one is the language, and that's a hill to die on for the BCTF. And so far, I think that's where the, the most paralysis is set in in terms of either side not giving in. Right, and the money, as you mentioned, that's just two, two, two. Everybody's getting that. Everybody's getting two, two, and two, and you can you can have some bells and whistles around the edges. You know, you can change the salary grid, uh, so some employees would get more than two, some would get less. Uh, there's also a 025 percent available uh, if you can somehow come up with um, gains in productivity uh, in terms of you know not incurring more costs uh, through work, which would mean probably changing the contract language, and that's something that the TF probably might not get if they if they stick to the guns and not change any language. But if Rob Fleming's correct in terms of his statement on Friday that they're willing to come in with a contract that simply makes no changes to the contract language, which was the first time we'd seen that position from the from the government, in exchange for a 6% wage increase, that may be where the settlement lies. That would just simply be called what's a rollover contract. The problem from the TF's point of view is that that's it. You wouldn't get anything else. They've, I think the TF came in with more than 40. They usually come in with you know a host of requests or demands, more than 40. Uh, all those would be left off the, on the side of the road, basically, if uh, if a contract were to roll over with no changes in language and simply the, the 2, 2, and 2 percent wage increase. Right, because like from 1998 to now, there have been other contracts and other language, but that all got thrown out, right? Well, the, the, the language is stripped by the Liberals in their first term in office in, I think, 2002, because it was deemed to be unworkable. It's language that Glenn Clark, the former Indy Premier, put in, gave to the TF uh, in exchange of no wage increase, and that was 
very controversial at the time. Uh, but the language has been out of the books, uh, out of the contract for years, but it was put back in by the Supreme Court of Canada's decision to side with the TF that was unconstitutional to do that because it violated their bargaining rights. But the question, the, the key aspect is the court did not say that language goes into the contract forever and ever. In fact, it just ruled that your bargaining rights were violated and you have the right to bargain that language, which means a little horse trading back and forth. The employer says there's none of that going on, and the employer's position is it's not the language is not there in perpetuity. It, it's subject to bargaining, which means it's subject to change. And that's the conversation that seems to be paralyzed right now. Right. Okay. And so on that particular note, it just sounds again, though, like they're going to end up kicking this can down the road. They are, and I wonder whether another imposed settlement it comes in from the from the government. Uh, it doesn't matter if the NDP is in power or the Liberals. There's no tolerance for a prolonged teacher strike. So if the picket line were to go up, I don't think it'd be up very long. I think you'd see the House come back, impose a contract, not strip the language out, but simply say you're going to get what all the public sector employees are getting, which is two, two, and two, and we're not making any changes to the language. But I think we're a ways away from that, so I don't think parents should be too jittery quite yet. Was there a thinking then, Keith, that because this was a different government, things were going to go differently this time? Oh, I think the TF very much thought things were going to go differently, but I remember explaining to some of the my teacher friends early on, it says, don't expect the NDP to simply do what they said they were going to do in opposition. They're now in government, and they have a completely different lens on, and that means making some tough decisions that would have been unthinkable in opposition, but in government, that's what you got to do. So the Site C Dam, you know, classic example, yeah. the NDP opposed it. They approved it in government. The LNG Canada, the NDP made noises uh, criticizing it in opposition, now a, a strong backer of it. Uh, the list is long. When you go into government. So there was no sense that uh, the government's going to come in and, and suddenly open up the books and give the TF all the money. Carol James is in charge of the negotiations. She's a pretty steely person. And she has set the, what's called the, the negotiating mandate, and it's at two, two, and two. Every other union so far has accepted that that mandate. The TF is discovering that, just like the Liberals, the NDP is no different when it comes to establishing these, these negotiating mandates. They stick to them because they're in government now, not opposition. And I think the, the BCTF underestimated that. Right. Okay. So then towards the end of the month, we should get a better idea of where things are. I think what we're going to know on the 23rd, if the mediator says, yep, let's get back talking, that's going to be an encouraging sign because he thinks that the, the two sides have moved enough to make it uh, a difference. If suddenly on the 23rd, though, he walks away again, then I think we're in trouble. But I don't think we're going to get there. I think talks will resume on the 30th, and we'll see how long they go. All right, Keith, thank you. All right, anytime. That's Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. I, there was a lot of hope that talks were going to get done first before the end of the school year. Remember, you probably heard about that in June. And then, oh, no, no, we're going to do this over the summer and it still didn't work, and now here we are in September. But as Keith pointed out, there is no appetite, it sounds like, on either side for any kind of a hard line on this. So for parents, sounds like you can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief, right? People just want for once this whole process to go smoothly. But I'm sure uh, teachers out there have thoughts, parents have thoughts, so go ahead and email me on this, simi at cknw.com, or use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. Do you remember what it was like being a teenager? It's tough, right? Some days you feel like everyone is against you. Some days you'll feel like you're going to make no friends, you don't like your friends, or they don't like you, that things will never get better. Now, some of that is a normal part of being a teenager and the hormones and the changes and all of that, but sometimes it is beyond that. There's this new report out from UNICEF, which was published today, that took a look at the well-being of kids in Canada. 
And this UNICEF report found that more than one in four Canadian children report feeling sad or hopeless for long periods of time. And around one in three are experiencing symptoms linked to mental distress each week. That's things like having headaches or stomach aches. Now, that can be really challenging for parents, right? Trying to navigate their children's mental health. How much of that is a normal part of being a teenager? How much of it, though, is beyond that when you should really be paying attention and maybe get them some help when it's more serious? That's what we're going to talk about now with our guest. Dr. Ashley Miller is with us, a psychiatrist at BC Children's Hospital. Dr. Miller, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Is this something that you hear from parents as well, that it's tough to kind of figure out what what the real situation is with their teen? Absolutely. Uh, in my office, but I also just had a conversation with a friend of mine earlier this week about this exact question. And what is it that people wonder? Like, there is a, a normal level of kind of grumpiness to being a teenager, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's a normal level of grumpiness to just being a human being in general. And True. we all have tough moments, um, experience different emotions, the full range of emotions. I don't even like to call them negative emotions because sadness, anxiety, shame, they're part of the human experience. So we, it would be abnormal to think that a child or a teenager shouldn't feel uh, those emotions from time to time. But when should a parent go, okay, there's something more going on here? So it's an excellent question. And Parents really do know their kids and they tend to have a gut instinct when their child's mood or behavior has been persistently off for a period of time. And I think that's what they need to trust, uh, that sense that things aren't improving, that even when the situation for the child or teen that day is going well, their, their mood isn't perking up or they're having persistent problems with their friends or there's Um, other kinds of physical symptoms like problems with sleep, appetite that persist. Again, that's when they usually start to naturally get concerned. Right. So there's a balance, right? Because we know that some teens just like to sleep a lot, but sometimes can that mask depression? Yeah. Sometimes being very irritable, uh, we think it's just crankiness or regular teen angst, but if it's every day for several days in a row and it's not varying very much, then that can be a sign of depression, oversleeping, undersleeping, not eating, losing weight or gaining a lot of weight and starting to engage in risky behaviors. All of those can be what we call sort of hidden uh, signs of depression. Is there an age where children are particularly vulnerable to mental health issues? Uh, The transition points tend to be vulnerable. So if we're looking at anxiety, there are periods like starting kindergarten or if there is a a big change, a family move, a loss of a friend uh, to moving away, that kind of thing. Children will be more prone to anxiety at those times. Transition to high school is another major time or the transition out of high school to post-secondary Right. Is is asking questions then the way to go? I know for sometimes for parents, you tend to get slapped back, right? When you ask some questions and maybe parents are a little nervous about that. Yeah, there, it is a tricky thing because of course you want information. It feels like it's hard to act without yeah. asking questions. So what we recommend is to try to just keep conversation going at all times, whether you're worried or not in 
easy ways. So walking together, driving in the car, talking about casual things first. It's hard if you've been a bit disconnected to just lead in with, so like, how's your mood lately? You know, you want to talk about just regular things and uh, even sit down with them, ask them what they're playing on their game console or what they're interested in online these days. And then it becomes easier to ask the more difficult questions. And it's always nice to just ask in a really non-judgmental way because kids are primed to think that parents are asking because they just want to then criticize them and tell them how they should be doing it differently. So it's that open approach, non-judgmental, your true concern shines through. Right. But what about the kids who say, Dr. Mellon, I'm sure there are plenty like this. Oh, everything's fine. Who, who keep that information from their parents? How do you get to their issues? Well, yeah, that is a very common response. And so again, ideally, you want to be doing something together. It's very hard for kids to just sort of take a break from their life and, and get into the more pointed questions. So shoot hoops together, go for a walk, get some ice cream, go to the mall, you know, things that they like. And as part of the conversation, if they say, oh, everything's fine, then you can just ask them about who their friends are, who they're hanging out with, what's going on with their friend group. It's often easier for teens to talk about their friends and themselves. And then you can weave it more into, and what about you? Like, oh, that's going on with so-and-so, but what about you? How has it been with for you lately with your friends, with substances, online, that kind of thing? Right. And what are some of the signs of that, do you think? Like, changing friends, you know, all of a sudden when new friends show up and they're talking a lot about somebody new that you've never heard of before, like, is that a sign? I saw, No, I wouldn't ever look at that as um, a sign of a mental health issue. Like, teens are often changing friends. That's pretty typical. Um, I, th- I think it's really more if, you, if you're seeing that your teen just seems unhappy or their behavior has changed in a, in a way that you're concerned about, that's when you worry. But you no, know, parents often jump to like, oh, well, they're hanging out with these new friends. I'm not so sure I like that. But to teens, friends are vital. So we want to approach the idea of new friends with a lot of um, open-mindedness and curiosity. Now, we've been talking about bullying for, you know, decades now. The UNICEF report also found that about a quarter of children report being bullied as well. Why are we not able to gain traction on this issue? You know, it's an excellent question. There's, a, there's an excellent resource for anyone who's interested, prevnet.ca. It has all the information you ever want about bullying. And I think it's just because so much of it is happening not right in front of adult eyes. A lot of it is either on the playground, not in the classroom, or, of course, online. And humans are tribal. You know, kids mm. will divide up into groups. And it's us against them is a way we see working in adults as well. Um, so we really want to teach kids about kindness, about what we, what we say call it being an upstander, not a bystander. As soon as you speak up and say, hey, something doesn't feel right and how this is going, whether it's an online uh, activity, a group chat, or you're watching something go down in front of you, it, all it takes is one person to get on side with the victim to change the dynamic. And that's a, a fairly simple thing to do, although kids find that it feels hard. Right. It's, you make such a great point, though. We expect kids to do better when a lot of times, as adults, we can't do better. It's hard for everyone. We we want kids, and there's wonderful programs now in schools, Mindfulness in the Schools, Roots of Empathy, that try to teach this stuff from an early age on 
um, finding your own happiness through positive activities instead of putting other people down. But these, yeah, these are tough things. These are lessons. So our kids are learning this. And we're trying to teach our kids and teens uh, the value of kindness and compassion and how to feel good about yourself by including others, by lifting others up. Yeah, you talked about resources for parents. And so if they do have some questions, um, you know, where can they go? Where can kids go if they if they need some help? So another excellent website uh, and resource is the Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre. And the website is Kelty, K-E-L-T-Y, mentalhealth.ca. There's information for parents, for youth, for teachers on supporting uh, kids with mental health issues and also those questions of how do I know if something is really wrong with my child or teen or not. Boundary BC uh, is another excellent website and resource and very uh, youth-specific information, information about how do you talk to your teen, about uh, your concerns for their mental health. Right. Uh, Yeah, there's lots out there. We're talking about a very stressful time of year for parents and for students out there, for teenagers in particular, going back to school, fitting in, getting back to that routine. But when can you tell that you might be having a problem or that your kids might be having a problem? We were talking about this new UNICEF report that came out today that shows that more than one in four Canadian children report feeling sad or hopeless for long periods of time. And around one in three experience symptoms linked to mental distress every week, things like headaches and stomach aches. So if you have a question for Dr. Ashley Miller, you can give us a call 604-280-9898. And Dr. Miller, let me just ask you as well here, those physical symptoms that they're talking about that, how common are those? Physical symptoms are very common for all of us actually when experiencing emotions or part of emotions. So you can have, uh, you, you know, you feel the flush of your cheeks when you feel embarrassed but to feel more intense physical symptoms like stomach aches or headaches, very common for children who are experiencing anxiety and uh, kids often express their emotional distress and physical symptoms. But it's actually true at all ages that if you think of getting butterflies in your stomach before writing an exam, uh, those are very common. Right. And how good are we as adults even figuring out when those symptoms happened? It takes, uh, it takes knowing yourself. It takes a while to figure out hmm, when my body is doing this, maybe actually I'm feeling stressed or maybe this is a sign that I'm angry or sad. So not always. It sort of depends on the person and, and how um, in tune they are with their, their body and physical symptoms. Right. We've talked a lot, we've heard a lot in recent years about the level of anxiety in kids. Is that something that you think is increasing out there? There's uh, some reports to suggest that it, it may be increasing. It, it's hard to know how much we're just getting better at detecting it. And there's also lots of uh, excellent initiatives to help kids with stress, such as mindfulness in the schools. And I think more parents becoming aware, again, of the importance of free play and of not being overscheduled. So my hope is that it's it's coming around. Right, free play. It's funny how we have to put a name on that now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. Used to be you yeah. just said go play or go or didn't say anything, just expected them to amuse themselves. Yeah, exactly. And as as you were, again, talking about the UNICEF report, just thinking about loneliness and how we've, we've read about loneliness for adults, but I think 
part of our kids having so much access to uh, to digital technology is that we forget that that kind of connection is not the same as face-to-face connection. And I think our, our we're really learning this. And I, I hope that uh, moving forward, we start to uh, come back to some of the older ways of being with each other. Yeah, I've noticed as well, another trend in some schools is providing an area for some rough play. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, physical activity and uh, all those natural instincts that kids have, they're Kids know what they need, right? It's, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's so true. So true. Uh, so just before I let you go, a quick question about those physical symptoms. Do you think sometimes with parents, we hear, oh, I have a stomach ache. You go, yeah, 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 you're fine. Like, how do we come get over that? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's also, that's not the worst thing to do because we, we, we don't want to overreact either. Yeah. And, I mean, there some empathy is helpful, but being practical is also helpful. So we do want to help our kids recognize over time that anxiety, that physical symptoms, let's say that tummy hurts, may be in part related to how they're feeling stressed about going to school. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean we're going to just only provide mounds of empathy and, and not get them out the door. So both are important. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Dr. Miller, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. That is Dr. Ashley Miller, psychiatrist at BC Children's Hospital. All right, let's talk about some dietary advice at this time of year. I know everybody's thinking school lunches and work lunches and all that kind of thing, but we want to be healthy. And everybody always says, oh, we should work more plant-based items into our diet. But how do you do that? Where do you start? How do you meal plan? How does that change things? So many questions, but our next guest can actually help with that. It is Desiree Nielsen. We've talked to her many times, but so rarely actually in person. She's a registered dietitian. Her new book is called Eat More Plants, Over 100 Anti-Inflammatory Plant-Based Recipes for Vibrant Living. And she is here with us today. Hi, Desiree. Hi. I love this book. Thank you so much. How did you develop the recipes? You know, these recipes were really a labor of love. I, you know, we were talking before, I have scores of cookbooks lining my shelves. And, you know, not a lot of them are plant-based. So I would get these books for flavor inspiration. um, And then I wouldn't use the recipes because they took 90 minutes or two hours. And I'm not going to do that on a Wednesday night. So the ideas really came a lot from, you know, flavor combinations I read in cookbooks and like a meat recipe or something or something I eat in a restaurant. But then I really wanted to make them doable. Like everything is 30 to 45 minutes. You can do this on a Tuesday night because I want this book to get like batter spattered and used and loved. That is so true. You're right about the cookbooks. It's tough to find one that you go back to for something quick and easy. I think my current one, now this one's going to be the new one, but my current one is America's Test Kitchen Vegetarian Cookbook, which is a really, really good one as well. And, you know, it's with Eat More Plants, you know, the other thing that I really want to do is that this is a therapeutic nutrition cookbook. Yeah, there's a lot to read in here. There is. There's a lot to read. You know, I'm a dietitian. I still have an active practice. And so many people come to me because they're not feeling well. And, you know, they Mm. look well, but they're in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. We live crazy lives and their gut's going nuts or they have this inflammation stuff going on. And, you know, I spend so much time teaching people how to eat, but still we need to know what to make for dinner. 
And so this and is like now. Yeah. And like now. So, that, you know, as opposed yeah. to like hand selecting recipes from the internet for my clients. Yeah. Now it's like everything in this book will help you heal. It'll help you feel more energized and it tastes really delicious. What are your favorites? Is there one, a couple of recipes that really stick out for you in this? There must be. There, there are, you know, it's hard to, you know, choose favorites amongst your babies, but there's a, a lentil <laughs> walnut taco recipe in there because everyone loves tacos. It's so flavorful. You will never buy a packet of taco seasoning again. And I essentially put like a salad on the taco and call it salsa. <laughs> okay. I could buy that. And is that, is that key as well? Where are you making things that people will go, this tastes familiar? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there are new ideas in the book, but then there's a lot of like kind of cheeky familiar, like there's a burger there, but it's um, edamame and green. So it's got a little Asian flair happening. Yeah, totally. Um, But I also want to introduce people to new things like the turmeric cake, which is actually a traditional Lebanese recipe that I've sort of healthified um, to just show people that you can use spices you don't expect in ways that you don't expect or to use a vegetable in a way that you don't expect like celery root and make it a fritter and make it a delicious snack. I saw the golden porridge in there yes. as well. Tell us about that. So the golden porridge is actually one of my favorites. Uh, and the reason it is, is because so many of us eat oatmeal or porridge every single day. And we're Mine like- sitting on my desk right now. Right? Actually, and you're yeah. like, yeah, I'll eat this because it's healthy, but I'm not really excited by it. That golden porridge is so flavorful. It tastes like the most amazing, like sort of turmeric chai beverage but in a millet porridge. And it's millet too, as opposed to oats. So just getting people to try a new grain in a way they probably haven't before. Let's talk about millet for a second here, because (laughs) I do keep seeing millet recipes and I'm intrigued. What is it? So millet, it's the new quinoa, at least in my Ah, house. the new quinoa. (laughs) Because my family actually doesn't love quinoa. So I was making them eat it, eat it, eat it. And they're like, we're really tired of this. Millet is amazing because it has a similar nutrient profile. It's really high in minerals. It's got some protein. Um, It cooks up just as quickly, but it's actually got a fluffier, weedier texture, almost like a couscous. It's still gluten-free. It's still really nutrient dense, um, but it's very comforting in my opinion. The fluffy, I think, is a big difference because you're right. There's a couple of non-quinoa fans at my house and the problem is they're like, it's little pebbles. It's like too grainy (laughs) for them. So that would make a big difference. Do you think millet is, are these kinds of ingredients becoming more widely available? They are. I mean, we live in a little bit of a bubble here in Vancouver because these things are available not just at the health food store, but, you know, like at the superstore, like at everywhere. Um, so some places they might be a little harder to find, but the goal for me in this book is that they were foods that people could access almost anywhere because right. I want people to actually get in there and cook. Let's talk about that then. How much of what you can make in this book is sitting in your pantry right now? Like in anybody's pantry right yeah. now? Yeah. You know, if you're kind of the average healthy eater, a lot. The the challenge with this or the difference with this book is that it's a completely gluten-free book as well. Oh. My goal was to do completely gluten-free and plant-based so that it's as accessible to as many people as possible. And I have a lot of clients in my practice who are gluten-free because I do gut health. So as opposed to using wheat pasta, you know, you're going to explore chickpea pasta or you're actually going to make your own gnocchi from chickpea flour in that really? cookbook as well. Because yeah. are potatoes bad? Potatoes aren't bad. And I think this is really important for me as a dietitian. There is no food that is good or bad. Everything exists in a balance. This book, however, is designed to be anti-inflammatory. So eating a lot of potatoes, which are really fluffy, which will spike your blood sugars, 
they don't have a huge place in an anti-inflammatory cookbook, but they absolutely have a place in a healthy diet. You're so right about the pasta though. Cause like I always loved pasta and then I quit eating pasta for a long time. And then on a night out thought, oh, I'm going to splurge and have this pasta. And boy, did my gut ever feel it. Is that just what's going to happen as we get older? You know, I've been having this conversation a lot. So I'm turning 40 this month and, you know, naturally I'm having this conversation. (laughs) I'm super excited. I actually, I feel really good about my forties, but if I'm honest with myself, what's different is my body. And so a lot of these recipes came out of that response to, I can't eat the way that I did when I was 25 nope. and feel the same. However, eating this way, uh, eating the fewer refined grains, being way more vegetable focused. So not just like a healthy meal of a ton of brown rice and some tofu, but way more vegetables on my plate mm-hmm. make me feel actually better better than I did when I was 25. That is so true. So how would, how do you ease yourself into this? Especially if you're thinking you want your whole family, you can't just kind of start cold turkey and go, Hey everybody, this is what's now for dinner. How do you ease everybody into that? Yeah. Especially if you have a family with, you know, fairly standard taste buds, I think it's really important to go slow and to really have a sense of play with all of this. You know, we can so excited about making change and then think we have to change everything overnight and it usually ends up petering off pretty fast so if you have kids at home particularly look through the book together or like maybe select five recipes you'd be interested in making and then talk with them I want to make something new I want us to explore something new as a family let's go through these five recipes what would you be most interested to try and then get them grocery shopping with you. Get them in the kitchen. I really think we have doing one, not assume that our kids only like quote unquote kid food, you know, like white starch yeah. and cheese and nothing else. <laughs> Although they do love it. <laughs> Believe me, I know. I have two of them. Um, but also getting them involved in their own food preparation and understanding the time, attention, and care that it takes. And they're going to be way more likely to accept a food if they had a hand in making it. And who wouldn't want to eat healthy breakfast cupcakes with a salted chocolate frosting? My children love that recipe. It's dairy-free, gluten-free, vegan, and vegetarian. Yes, and it doesn't taste like all of those things. Because <laughs> that's the point, right? You can, I mean, you can eat straw and that's vegan and gluten-free, <laughs> but no you want to actually enjoy what you're eating. If you don't enjoy it, what's the point? So ease yourself into it. You said start with five recipes and say, listen, over the week, we're going to cook these five recipes. Yeah. Or even slower than that. If you're doing two of these recipes every week, yeah. that's phenomenal. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Work them in. If you need a little bit of extra salt or a little bit of extra sugar to help bring it up to what your taste buds are used to, do it. But don't go overboard. I feel like sugar is going to be the next book of yours we're going to be talking about. (laughs) Everything in there is incredibly low sugar, but I think the thing is, is you have to meet yourself where you're at. If you're drinking sweetened drinks like all day, every day, if you eat a lot of candy, if you eat a lot of baked goods, you might have to doctor these recipes because your taste buds just don't appreciate low sugar whole foods yet. So that's the point then is the transition. So just a little bit by a little bit until you're used to it. And then then you find you won't need it as much anymore. Absolutely. Taste buds do change. And I think people are really surprised how quickly they do. Is this available now? This is available now. It's available everywhere. It officially came out, I guess, a week 
a week ago. It's been seven days. Wow, you've been very busy. <laughs> the book is called Eat More Plants, Over 100 Anti-Inflammatory Plant-Based Recipes for Vibrant Living. It's a beautiful book. You'll love to read it. There's a lot of great information in there as well. Desiree, thanks so much for being with Thank us. Thank you so much, Simi. That is Desiree Nielsen, registered dietitian and now author as well. So check out her new cookbook. There is good news and bad news for students and parents in Surrey at this point in September, new school year upon us. Bad news is there are more portables than there have ever been, something like 361, 28 more portable classrooms this year, as a matter of fact. But on the good news side of it, an announcement today from the Education Minister Rob Fleming that they're going to get more money, $21 million towards seismic upgrades at a couple of schools that I remember very well, Holly Elementary and George Greenway Elementary. Uh, So let's talk more about what's going on in Surrey now with the help of Doug Strachan, the Communication Services Manager for the Surrey School District. Doug, thank you for being back with us. My pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. Where is Surrey at when it comes to seismic upgrading of schools? Because a lot of the schools there are newer than, say, in Vancouver. We are uh, certainly uh, doing well in in uh, taking care of upgrades for that high. Uh, I think it's uh, level uh, well, the high le- highest level of seismic uh, uh, risk. So uh, these latest announcements, uh, that's two schools in uh, just completed uh, seismic upgrades, uh, two of our elementary schools, and now two more are going to be uh, receiving that treatment. And that really puts us, uh, puts us in pretty good um, position of, uh, I, I think there might be just a few of the higher risk uh, buildings and then uh, the rest are medium or low. Right. Okay. So then this announcement, these are two older schools, aren't they? Holly Elementary and George Greenway? Yeah, that's generally the, the the case, and it's usually just a certain section or a gymnasium that needs reinforcement, and I believe that's the case with these two schools as well. Not the whole school, but just section or a or a gymnasium, and um, and it's good news. Obviously, everybody you know, no, people don't think every day about earthquakes, but on the other hand, we want to be have some confidence in security in that. Right. Let's talk about the size of the Surrey School District here as well. I mean, you had, what, more uh, 1,000 more children expected this year than last year? We anticipate that, actually, perhaps up to 1,200 more students this year. So that's a couple of elementary schools right there. Uh, it's a, it is a, a constantly, I mean, going back 30 years, it's been steady growth of 1% to 2%, 2.5% uh, each year. So it's a lot of, um, the, Surrey's a popular place with young families, clearly. And uh, we are getting the schools built. You know, the, the biggest uh, challenge is the time lag it takes. So um, we, but we expect, uh, I think it's five new schools uh, being completed in 2021. So that, that construction is underway. Right, but is that even going to be enough, Doug? You grow at that rate, you're going to be needing new schools every couple of years. You know, the, the government uh, will have to be uh, pretty steady with the, the level of capital that they have invested in just their first two years in, in government. Um, so it's a, certainly a good sign that they're committed to making uh, helping us catch up. And uh, it just, uh, as you point out, the rate of growth we have, you need to continue with that kind of investment to get ahead of it. How challenging is that, though, for you at the district at this time of years? Can you even count how many kids the school's going to have, how many classrooms to have? How do you prepare for that? Well, there's 
projections that start very early in the year, and uh, certainly we have a lot of experience with that. And there are uh, uh, third parties that we uh, consultants that would help us make sure or come as close as we can with projections. And uh, so we get those portables in place where they're needed. Obviously, we're moving them from some schools that no longer need them because of additions being completed or what have you, and uh, move them to where they are needed. And we get that all done in the summer. And you know that's a lot of work in a short period of time and a lot of credit to our facilities people who make that happen on top of their regular uh, need to do maintenance and uh, summer work that can only be done when the students aren't there. Right. And by far, Surrey is the largest school district in the province, is it not? By far. Uh, We're around, we expect to be over 74, close to 75,000 this year. And I think the next closest is uh, Vancouver School Board. And I think they may be in the low 60s. Yeah, that's some of the numbers I'm looking at right here. That is huge. Do you think then, Doug, like the Surrey get the kind of attention it deserves compared to its size in, in light of everything else? That's, uh, you know, when it comes to capital, uh, th- this government has, has certainly um, made a lot of announcements, including today's announcement on the seismic upgrades uh, as far as uh, capital construction. So that's one aspect. Now, I know our board has uh, expressed the the desire to have some compensation, as you say, as the largest school district, we face different challenges uh, to have funding for the, the cost of portables, uh, moving them and hooking them up yeah. and buying them, etc. The, the minister has said he, he, he prefers to focus on getting the capital done, and uh, that's where that sits. I know that also that our, our board has been uh, vocal about uh, the funding formula for students. And again, there's specific circumstances to a district our size and uh, and the growth that we deal with. So, yeah, I guess you could call them growing pains. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, in the days or the years where schools were closed or school districts had to close schools, that's a painful process, too. And perhaps, uh, I think, much more emotionally invested. So uh, I think growing pains on on the whole are, are, are better to deal with. Right. So is that fair, then, I guess, is the question in Surrey, is it? Because maintaining portables isn't cheap either, right? You're right, moving them, outfitting them, building them. That's a constant cost that other districts don't have. The board has uh, calculated it at, uh, our staff has calculated it at $10.7 million, uh, the, for this coming year to, to deal with portables, just, just to heat them, the extra costs of heating uh, and, and hooking them up, moving, transporting them, etc. So, yes, it is significant, and our, and our board has made it clear to the ministry that uh, they think it would be fairer if we were compensated for that because it's money coming right out of our operating budget. And um, That's money that could be going to kids. Uh, that's right, into the schools. Uh, I guess, you you know, we're, we've heard from the minister, and, uh, um, you know, it certainly will help to have uh, the ongoing commitment of uh, capital funds that appear to be... Uh, uh, over the last two years have set a trend, but that uh, we'll see. We will. Doug, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again about this. Thanks for your time. Okay, Simi, thank you. That's Doug Strachan, the Community Services Manager for Surrey Schools District. What an interesting point that they have just raised. He says that in their budget at the Surrey School District, it's about $10.7 million extra every year that Surrey has to pay. That's how much the portables 
cost them. You know what we want to do right now? We want to talk about that big announcement that we just heard about in Burnaby, the fact that they're going to build a new Burnaby hospital, $1.3 billion. We have Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley on the line to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And this is a great day for Burnaby and a wonderful announcement for our residents and the residents of the Lower Mainland. Yeah, let's talk about that. I don't think people who live outside of Burnaby, Mayor Hurley, understand the state of the hospital in your city. Well, the hospital was built in 1952, and the last uh, uh, major renovation was done to this hospital in the early 70s. And uh, the hospital is really in a rundown state, although we we have an incredible staff who do great work. And, and right now, with this announcement today, we will have a facility that will match the quality of staff that we have here when it's completed. There have been other announcements, though, over the years. I'm thinking back in 2016 of a major redevelopment. How concerned are you that this one's actually going to happen? Well, we're very uh, very confident that this will happen at this time because the hospital is, is in such dis- disrepair that uh, it's almost a necessity and uh, that this replacement has to move forward. And our community continues to grow. Indeed, the community of the Lower Mainland continues to grow, and, and the needs grow along with that. So this is desperately needed in our hospital that's been, uh, that, to be honest, has been, uh, this should have been done a long time ago. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've seen Burnaby Hospital. I know. I've covered some stories there. Do you think, Mayor Hurley, do people go to Burnaby Hospital, or do you think Burnaby residents, do they sometimes go elsewhere? Uh, no, this is still a very, very busy hospital, I mean, you know, 1,500 children delivered a year here. It's the second busiest uh, emergency in uh, in Fraser Health. So, you know, people are still coming to this hospital and, and, and getting great service from the staff here, despite the limitations of the facilities. And how big of a difference? Talk about the, the new emergency ward that they're going to be building. Is that going to be bigger than the one that's there now? Yes, it's going to be much bigger than the one that's here now, and, and we'll be able to, uh, you know, once we're completed, we'll have uh, much more up-to-date equipment, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just be in a better position to serve uh, our populations. Right, and there's the Cancer Treatment Centre. Now, is that something new? Uh, that's been uh, added in the last, uh, discussed over the last few months, and yes, that's something new that's been added this time around, and... Uh, Another uh, urgent need uh, within this community, indeed many communities, as we know, cancer just continues to be a plague uh, throughout our throughout our populations. So, what is that cancer treatment center going to change then for residents in Burnaby? Well, it'll mean that you know you can come here for treatment instead of having to to go all the way down to VGH or or uh, one of the other Surrey hospital that we will actually be able to to do the chemotherapies and the different cancer treatments right here uh, within our own city. So that'll make a, a great difference to many of our our ill residents and very ill residents who yeah. don't need that to travel those extra distances. So you're saying that up until now, if you're a Burnaby resident who needed cancer treatment, you couldn't be treated in your own community? Uh, not, not at a high level. I mean, you could have initial treatment, but uh, certainly ongoing treatment, you, you couldn't be treated at this hospital. You just don't have the the uh, facilities to do it. So what is the timeline like for this? Well, the proposed timeline for the completion of everything uh, is uh, 2027. That's uh, the complete $1.3 billion. But the first phase, the first tower, 
should be completed by 2000, the end of 2022. Right, that's fast. Yes. So it's all yeah. full speed ahead. I guess the Burnaby Hospital Foundation as well has a lot of work to do here. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do uh, with uh, Burnaby Hospital Foundation, and I've committed to be a champion uh, for the hospital foundation to raise the funds we need to to get the best equipment uh, to serve uh, to serve uh, our citizens. So that's a big commitment I have made uh, with the hospital foundation. So we have a work cut out for us too. All right, Mayor Hurley, thank you for your time on this. And listen, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a great day, as I say. All right. That is Mike Hurley, the mayor of Burnaby. It is a great day for people in Burnaby. You heard that. The big announcement coming from Premier John Horgan, Health Minister Adrian Dix, a $1.3 billion commitment for a big new facility in Burnaby. Have a listen to the Premier making the announcement. $1.3 billion for two new patient care towers, new wards, new operating rooms, 400 new beds, the majority of which will be single uh, patient beds bigger emergency room, and most importantly, and why we've decided to keep the facility here, a new cancer treatment centre to complement the great work we do here in BC. This has been decades in the making for Burnaby to get a brand new uh, facility, $1.3 billion, as you heard the Premier say there, at the cancer treatment centre. That's huge. And I didn't realize that things that was the case for Burnaby residents who needed cancer treatment at a higher level uh, couldn't actually have it in their community. That's going to be big, new emergency ward and all of that. So we'll be hearing more about it. What is the fascination that we have with true crime? Books, TV shows, entire TV channels, actually, that are devoted to stories about murderers and missing people, mysteries, essentially, that we all want to see solved. There is no denying that we are drawn to these stories, whether they are in the news today or happened years ago. Now, Rachel Monroe is an author whose latest book tackles this subject. It's called Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. And she joins us now to talk more about this. I have been looking forward to this discussion. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am one of those people, Rachel, who is also like, I I watch Dateline. I watch like every episode of Dateline. I, I know uh-huh. the ID channel. When you talk about ID channel, and you know, a funny thing happened. I was at a, uh, a family event once and I mentioned the ID channel and all the women in the room, all my aunts, cousins, all whipped their head around and they were like, I watch the ID channel. What is this fascination we have with true crime? Yeah, isn't it really striking that yeah. that it is so overwhelmingly women? I mean, if you think we tend to think of violence as a the male proclivity, and it's certainly if you look at who's committing violence, it's men. But the the fascination with the stories of crime um, are overwhelmingly consumed by women, and um, and I think it's a lot of different things all at once. That that was sort of why it took a whole book to get through it. Some of it having to do with empathy, some of it having to do with a fascination with psychology, um, some of it having to do with uh, a need for to create justice in the world i think that's a really good point i'd like to think about it that would make it the nicer option right other than this kind of morbid fascination that we have with it did you have a moment where you realized that you wanted to write about this well, it really started with a curiosity about my own self. Um, I am like you. I had 
this uh, real fascination with these stories. And it was always confusing to me because I tend to think of myself as a pretty friendly, nonviolent person. Um, but uh, it, especially if you get me together with my mother, um, all we are doing is like talking about just the most awful things that people do to each other. And, you know, my father will have to like leave the room sometimes. <laughs> and so uh, it just started out with that, like why when I'm in a point of uh, stress, I had a hard day at work. Why is this what yeah. I turn to? Like what's going on in my own head there? What am I looking for? Exactly. You, you're so right. I, I was thinking about myself and my daughter. We do that. We watch these shows together. And so was there a particular moment though, where you thought I have to write about this? Well, it was just really like over time and, and also partly thinking back about my childhood and how how young I was um, when I read Helter Skelter, the book about the, the Manson family murders. I think I was 13. And so um, realizing that these stories have consumed me for, for so long and then also seeing that they were starting to have this cultural moment. I mean, they've always been fascinating to people, but in the past few years, we've we've been in another one of these what what people call true crime booms. Uh, so it seemed like a really apt time to think about what in our culture was making us um, drawn to these stories as well, not just as individuals, but as, as a whole culture. Is it a modern era issue, though? Or have we always had this fascination? I feel like even if you go back in history, there's always been a fascination with sensational stories. Totally. I think that's really true. I mean, if you look at crimes like, you know, Lizzie Borden, her, right. the trial of Lizzie Borden was just full of people and full of women, too. So it's also not it's not new um, that that women are drawn to these things. But still, we have this idea that women are supposed to be uh, nice or, or quiet or peaceful. And so and, and that was one of the fun things about writing this book is I got to go back um, about 100 years. Like the first woman that I profile was born in the 19th century. And so um, tracing this fascination back um, over years and seeing how it built and how things like the internet have have changed it, but also how, how these fascinations um, manifested in the time before the internet. Right. And you divided the book up into kind of four archetypes, the detective, the victim, the defender, the killer. Why set it up that way? Well, partially because the more I thought about uh, and the more I looked into the reason women were fascinated with these stories, the more I realized there was such a diversity of the way that people were fascinated and how that fascination showed up in the world. It's really um, different, I think, to read a book and want to try to figure it out and imagine yourself as a detective versus um, the people that you hear about sometimes who become fascinated by serial killers or famous murderers and even to the point of, you know, writing them letters or in some cases like starting a romance with them. So you have the same yeah. fascination, but it's expressed in these different ways. And so by setting the book up uh, to look at the same fascination from different angles, it seemed like it could cover a lot of ground and, and some of the more encouraging or like justice oriented parts of the, the genre. And then also the things that are maybe a little bit more troubling as well. Right. What are the little more troubling aspects? Well, I write about a young woman who um, became uh, fascinated with the Columbine shooters online. And there's a whole uh, internet world that a lot of people don't know about where particularly young women are essentially like expressing their love for the, the two school shooters from, from Columbine. Um, and through her fascination with this online world, she ended up uh, planning a mass shooting of her own. And, and I think we see this with a lot of these mass shooters that we have primarily in the U.S., um, that they go online and um, valorize 
these previous school shooters, it becomes almost like a cult of personality. And so um, I looked at that too, how, how the cultural fascination with um, uh, famous crimes right. can feed into that kind of obsession. But that is such a good point, though, when you were saying that. I was thinking about all the times we've heard about women who correspond with men in prison who have done the most horrible things. They have no shortage of women who still want to have some kind of a relationship with them. Yeah, that, I mean, that's certainly the case. I think in some ways that that's just an illustration of how our culture does, even if it condemns these these famous killers, it also is still fascinated by them. And, and so you'll see certain women playing into that. I mean, as they become celebrities. We grant them celebrity status in a way that I think is really quite troubling. And um, anybody who, who has that celebrity, even if it's a negative celebrity, is going to attract a certain number of, of hangers-on. Are there particular types of cases that fascinate you, Rachel? Um, you know, I I tend to be these days more fascinated uh, with the people who are fascinated with the cases, if that makes sense. I love <laughs> yeah. the the um, online amateur detectives, cold, people trying to solve cold cases, people uh, who have conspiracy theories about famous murders like the Manson murders. I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, less the, the cases themselves. I tend to be pretty squeamish these days increasingly and, and more how they exist as a cultural phenomenon. Hey, let's talk about the detectives, as you put it, too, and you categorize them. Uh, you're right about the online communities now who decide they're going to solve some of these uh, cases. Like the Golden State Killer was one of those cases. Yeah, I mean, it's an in- that's an interesting example because um, there was such a strong online community dedicated to solving it. I mean, people like Michelle McNamara and many yeah. others dedicated so much time to it. And I mean, what we now know, now that a likely suspect has been identified, that they they didn't get it right all of that time. And all, it shows in some ways like the limitation, right, of the online detectives is, is nobody, the guy who was essentially arrested recently, he was on nobody's radar. But that said what the online detectives were able to do was keep the pressure up on the police and um, make sure this cold, these cold cases didn't just get buried in a file room somewhere. And so even if online detectives maybe aren't from the, from the safety of their basement computer rooms going to solve a mystery, um, they can at least keep attention up and keep uh, people paying attention. Right. And so do you think in the end, is this good then for solving crimes to have so much attention paid to this true crime genre, because in the end, in some cases, it does, even decades later, end up solving crimes. I think we all just have to maintain our humility and to remember that there are real people at the center of these cases. I think that um, you're right that that sometimes the cold cases do get solved, but also at the same time, you see people uh, who sometimes treat these cases as if they're just an intellectual puzzle or a game for them to work out and forget that there are there are victims and victims' families um, at the center of this. And you can also see them sometimes turning into vigilanteism, you know, identifying a suspect and and kind of pursuing them extra legally. So I think just like anything else, there's a, there's a good and a bad. All of these things can be bent towards making the world a better place or, or making the world a maybe a more dark place. And, and we just have to be aware of our own motives and motivations. That is so true. Listen, fascinating subject. Rachel, thanks for talking to us about it. 
Thank you. Good luck with the book. It is Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. The author is Rachel Monroe. Uh, And, you know, it it is a fascination that so many of us have, but it it always has been there, as Rachel and I were just talking about. Whether it was Lizzie Borden, Jack the Ripper, like you name it, historical murder cases, there's always been those that get so much attention and people can't stop reading and learning more about them. Heads up, people in the vicinity of Vancouver, it looks like, sounds like anyway, that the most famous bird in the city is missing. Yeah, Canuck the Crow hasn't been seen since Friday. So has this happened before? And what can you do to help? Well, let's find out. Sean Bergman is with us now, the best friend of Canuck the Crow. Sean, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So can you tell me what happened? What's going on? Uh, Canuck just hasn't been seen since Friday at about 3 p.m., and uh, it's very worrisome because he uh, hasn't gone off on a multiple-day adventure for over two years now, um, probably closer to three. So for me, it's very, very concerning. Um, I have no idea what's happened to him, whether it's something has actually happened to him or if he's been taken by somebody. I'm not sure. Okay, let's back this up a little bit. Tell me about uh, Canuck's habits, Sean. Like, when do you see him? How does he normally behave? Like, how would somebody recognize that this is Canuck the Crow? Well, he's got the two leg bands. Uh, He's uh, not afraid to approach humans. Uh, He's very, uh, very recognizable that way. Um, His routine, he comes to the yard every day, uh, multiple times a day goes off on his short little adventures. Sometimes he's gone for five or six hours and always comes back, uh, checks in at night, uh, typically, before he goes off to the rookery and always checks in in the morning. And all of that, has, all that routine has been thrown off. And when you say and check in, what does he do? How do you know, how does he let you know he's there? I, he just finds me in the yard. He just flies up. And so you can know that that is Canuck, that he is checking in with you. Yes, definitely. He's got the orange band and the silver federal band that he has. So it's very recognizable with an orange band. No other crow has an orange band. Okay, what neighborhood is this? Uh, this is around um, the East Hastings Cassiar area. Okay. Have you been out looking for him? Yes. And no sign? Nobody has seen him? No, we've had a few reported sightings, but nothing concrete. And so you said this has been a couple of years now where you he's had very regular behavior and you've never seen anything like this before. Well, I saw it very, very long time ago, but he hasn't done this in a very long time uh, since he has uh, become a mated pair with his mate, Cassiar. Uh, they, he doesn't usually stroll very, or he doesn't usually uh, go very far from the neighborhood. He's usually quite close, but this is completely off his behavior. This is not common for him at all. So what are you afraid of here, Sean? What do you think might have happened? I'm afraid that somebody has him. You think that he's so, because that people know who he is, do you think? Or people not knowing, like just inadvertent? Or do you think somebody actually took him? Um, at this point, I'm not sure. There's theories. But I can't get into any of those right now. All right, so but people I think, do... Th- I think that just something has happened to him because he's not, um, this is not with his pattern at all. Okay, so then if people think they have seen Canuck the Crow, Sean, what should they do? Uh, contact the Facebook page, Canuck and I, uh, or the Instagram page uh, by the same name, 
Uh, they can also contact me at canuckandi at gmail.com. Okay, and I know this this has kind of been in the news for the last 24 hours or so. Have you had any tips or anything from anybody about him? Yeah, we've had a few tips um, from people that there's a report of a crow inside the Coliseum during the Superdog show at the T&E, but that turned out to not be anything. And we've also had a report of a crow matching Canucks description down in Linwood, Washington. So we're trying to determine if the timeline is right on that one, but we also have people down in Washington, Canuck and I fans that are um, already been in contact with the grocery store that uh, he was supposedly seen in the parking lot. So, um, the staff there is all aware and everybody there is aware and people are going to keep checking that parking lot to see if they see him, if it is, if it is indeed him, but the timeline might be off. So we're not entirely sure about that. All right. So the word is spreading there. So we'll keep, keep that out there. And Sean, let us know if there's any updates. Okay. Of course. Yeah. I will be right away on the page to let anybody know or to let everybody know as soon as he's back, if he does come back Okay. And as well, all I can urge people to do is, Keep your ears and your eyes open. If you hear a crow in your neighbor's place, that's not common. A crow should not be inside. So if you do hear something, report it because it could be Canuck inside. Okay. Well, Sean, thank as, you very much. Well, I'd also say any kind of construction sites, businesses, or anything like that that may have shut up for the weekend, check everything. He could be anywhere. Okay. All right. We'll get that word out. Sean, thank you. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. That is Sean Bergman. He's, as you heard, Connect the Crow's best friend. Connect the Crow has quite the following in the city, uh, known for being around that East Hastings, kind of Cassiar area there. And he hasn't been seen since Friday. And Sean clearly very worried. You can check out their Facebook page, Canuck and I, uh, to learn more about this and be on the lookout for him. We'll keep you posted on how that goes.